Uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Again, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and an usher will pass that to you. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. In our last teaching on Titus, we experienced Paul's overwhelming emphasis on God's grace, on God's grace. Uh, he mentioned several things regarding God's grace, and I would like to briefly recap them. Um, at this recognition of his grace will bear weight to today's message. Again, these previous five verses, again, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15, last week, we talked that grace did a few things. Grace did a few things. So here they go. The first one, grace made known the great gift of salvation. Secondly, grace disciplines us and grace teaches us. Thirdly, grace allows us to look back in humble adoration as we look forward with great anticipation. Fourthly, grace frees us and grace keeps us. Grace frees us and grace keeps us. And then lastly, grace commissions us. And on the heels of the power of God's grace, Paul will implore Titus to remind the believers in Crete of what grace looks like applied in godly living. If I were to put a tag on this morning's text, it would simply be this. Remember these things. Remember these things. With that being said, pick me up in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to slander no one, not to be contentious, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Verse four, but when, I love that, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And lastly, verse eight, this statement, this statement, this statement is trustworthy. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and beneficial for all people. Let's bow our heads in a world of prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, I ask that you allow your word to fall on fertile ground, that you will stir up our affections for more of Jesus, that you hide me behind your cross so that you may be seen. May your words be my words. Father God, I pray now that you allow us to be effectual doers of your word and not simply hearers that delude themselves for it is in the doing, it is in the doing, it is in the doing of the word that we are blessed. Strengthen us now by your grace and your grace alone. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen and amen. This 1994 Disney classic film could be known as one of the most famous movies of all time. One of the most memorable scenes of this film, The Lion King, is where Simba hears the voice of his father as he stares at the reflection of himself in the water. As Simba hears his father's voice from above, he looks up into what seems to be these forming clouds being shaped into the image of his father, Mufasa. And Mufasa reminds Simba as he hears this voice, he tells him, Simba, you have forgotten who you are. And as the clouds begin to fade away, Mufasa's voice begins to become 
more unclear as it pans out and he tells Simba, remember who you are. Remember, remember, remember. And every once and again, we as believers in Jesus must be reminded of what Christ has done for us and who we are in him. You see, we have this natural tendency to forget who we are in Christ due to our natural proclivity to sin. It is in chapter 3 of Titus that the Apostle Paul will make evident in the text to Titus and us today that we too are to be reminded. Paul will mention to Titus that we must be reminded of these things. We must be reminded of these things, which will help us in living well in the present age. And as we live well in the present age, we live in such a way that brings attention and glory to the very person and work of Jesus Christ. So with that being said, pick me up in verse 1 of chapter 3 as Paul starts out with what we as believers are to be reminded of. Here's what he says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. You see, it's right off of the cusp of Paul's emphatic focus on the grace of God that he begins the very next line with this emphatic command. Remind them. Remind them. And this urgent command is what we oftentimes as believers need in Jesus. You see, we need this consistent and this constant reminder of how we are to live. As we discussed in our recent teaching, we must not forget the weight of what Christ has done and the price that he paid for our lives on the cross. You see, this phrase, remind them here in the Greek, is written in the perfect tense. It is this word, hypomenesco. It is the act of causing someone to remember. This Greek word was used when someone in authority was reminding people to act properly. Uh, it's, it's that reminder my mom would give me and my sister growing up that before we went into a store uh, a fine paste that she would stop us before the doors open. She would look us in the eye and she would say before your feet hit this floor don't touch anything and don't you break anything. And, and we see Peter's use of this same word in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And check out verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you you see we too no no matter how long you have been a believer in Jesus no matter how long you've walked with the Lord no matter how long you've gone to church you too in the here and now must be reminded Paul informs Titus of what we are to be reminded of. Check it out. He mentions reminded to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Now, before we dive into the list of two B's, I want to see how many times to be is found in the first sentence alone. And if we include verse 2 in our count, what we're going to see is that this word to be is going to be found four times in the text. Now, you're probably wondering at first glance when I'm looking at this, why is this small detail so important? Why do we need to hone in on this particular piece? What is Paul emphasizing regarding to be? You see, to be is a command. It's an imperative. It's not something that Paul is suggesting that you and I are to do. Or maybe just think about it if it hits your mind at a certain point of the day. Just don't think about it. No, Paul says this is a command. Don't consider this. 
do this. And Paul's point is very simple. As believers who have been saved by this amazing grace, we must, we must, we must put on and do these things. Paul's focus here is Christians' ethical obligations to governments and civic authorities. He says to be subject to rulers and to authorities. You see, it was common in antiquity for people to do what was called household code, simply meaning that they were to obey, to honor, to respect, and to follow what the government said to do. And friends, it is clear in the text that the believer in Jesus Christ, although his allegiance is to Christ alone, that they too are to submit themselves to the governing authorities that are there. If you don't believe me, Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says this is what Paul says. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist, here it is, are established by God. Not only should the believer who lives in this present age live well as citizens of this world, but their ultimate and supreme allegiance and subjection is to the Lord God himself. And because God himself has in fact established all authorities in the earth, our proper response is to submit ourselves to his work and to his will. And might I even suggest that regardless of our political bent, God is still in control regardless of who is voted in or out of civic office. That our biblical response must be to submit to God's working and willing. Why? Because ultimately, friends, at the end of the day, God is sovereign. And the Apostle Peter would mention this regarding submitting to governing authorities. Check out 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Check verse 15 out. I love it. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. The latter part of verse one mentions that believers must be obedient and ready for every good deed. In other words, our ability as Christians to live well should not only be reflected in that of the church regarding submission to spiritual leadership, but it should also be submission under Christ as we live in society. Our lives as believers are not to be divorced from the very world that we live in. The statement that I would hear growing up in church from the older generation, they would say that you cannot be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. And what this is to mean is that because we have our eyes fixed on eternal things, we must live, we must serve, and we must love well now with the eternal mindset fully realized. Ultimately, eternal perspective is never to be divorced from current issues that demand biblical truth to be heard and seen in the present age. We don't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and just sit down and not participate in what God wants us to do. That we must engage the culture with the truth of the gospel that we have, irregardless of what they think or believe. So Paul continues with what the believer must be reminded of. Check out verse 2. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Paul moves from discussing the way in which we should deal with governing authorities to how we should deal with secular society. And he shifts this focus from governing authority to secular society, and he mentions that the believer should malign no one. Now, now that word malign here in the text comes from the Greek word blasphemio. Uh, it's where we get our English word blaspheme. Now, this word typically uh, can refer to reviling a human being. But mostly what we see in the text is that this word oftentimes refers to blaspheming God. And in this particular context, it refers to individuals slandering one another rather than being kind to one another. 
Paul also mentions that the believer is to avoid quarreling. What's interesting is that Paul mentions total opposite characteristics of who Cretans are according to Titus chapter 1 verse 12. You might remember the statement that Epimenides said that Cretans are liars, always evil beasts and lazy gluttons. But however, Paul is saying that the Cretan believer should be complete opposite. And Paul's application in this part of the text deals specifically with how believers deal with all people in a horizontal fashion and how they should live amongst all people. It is without question that the believer in Christ will have to deal with non-believers in the workplace, the governing institutions, communities, and even in the schools. You see, Paul's primary point regarding people is that every believer in Christ on that island should reflect the kindness and the love of Christ. That regardless of how we feel about someone based upon what we see in their lives or, or anything of that matter, that every individual is created in the imago Dei. They're created in the image of God. That this is confirmed in the latter half of verse 2 where Paul says to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, this word all men, you know what all men in the Greek means? All men. <laughs> not complicated. Every person that you come across, irregardless of if they're a believer or not, that you are to consider them, to love them, to be kind towards them. This is what Paul is urgently informing Titus about regarding what we must be reminded of. But the implications of this truth, friends, goes beyond just the believers themselves. You see, if the world looks at the church and they can see, they can't see the difference between us and them, how is the gospel message attractive? When the church is not the church in the sense of being the church the way that Jesus has called us to be, we begin to lack the effectiveness that Christ has called us to. If gossip and maligning and evil intent and the like fester within the church, within believers who make up the church, how in the world can the church be seen as the salt and the light of the world? I love what John Calvin said regarding doctrine and living. He said, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but a doctrine of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Check out Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, your light must shine before people. In such a way that they may see, that they may see, that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Did you catch that? That what they see results in who they see. What we are capturing, friends, from the text is how Jesus can take jacked up people, toe up from the flow up, and bring them to a new life in him apart from who they used to be. This is something that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 14 regarding the formation of the church with both Jews and Gentiles alike. Within the first century church, bringing into the family both Jewish believers and Gentile believers under one roof would be difficult to say the least. The reason why is because you're bringing in different traditions. You're bringing in different cultural backgrounds and the like. And Paul's emphasis in Romans chapter 14 is to bring these two groups together as one people under Christ. Why? Because Christ has redeemed them all. We see this cultural class really clear in Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 48 
We won't have time to read through it all, but we see that Peter, if I were to summarize it, Peter is at Cornelius' house, and Peter has this dream regarding what he deemed as unclean foods. Peter became hungry. He starts going to the kitchen, tries to make him something to eat, and all of a sudden, he gets this vision. This white, this white sheet begins to fall from the sky, and on this sheet are four-legged animals and all kinds of meats and all kinds of food. And what happens is Peter's response to what God says to him is interesting. And God tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter, as a Jew, looks at this and he's like, yo, <laughs> come on now, Lord. Matter of fact, Acts chapter 10, verse 14 gives us the exact words. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Peter is then told a significant thing that I don't want you and I to miss in the text. Uh, check out verse 15 of chapter 10 of Acts. Again, a voice came to him a second time. And this is what the voice says. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Peter is in essence checked by God regarding who Peter deems as clean and unclean. God is showing Peter that his choosing, God's choosing of whom he calls to himself is not based upon Jewish prospect. As a matter of fact, that salvation is provided to both the Jew and to the Gentile, the slave and the free, the rich and the poor. That what I pray, friends, that you and I see this morning regarding Paul's blunt dealings with Titus is that we too, in the 21st century, can have a tendency to develop what I call spiritual amnesia. You see, we, we as believers, we forget that God called us not to be his salvation police. But rather, we are in fact recipients of his grace as well. You know, we tend to forget that it is God's grace that saved us and it was the Father that chose us. The reality is, is that like others who come to the church and come to faith, friends, you and I have to be patient with them. There are going to be new people that are going to come into verse-by-verse -verse fellowship who may not have a relationship with Jesus like you do. And it's going to be important that you love them well, that you bear with them well, that you be patient with them well. Why? Because God in his goodness and God in his mercy was patient with you. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? We are to be kind and gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people because God in his goodness has shown the same measure of kindness towards us. Paul says at the end of verse two, showing every consideration for all men. Don't, don't, don't miss that here. This, this word consideration in the Greek is prates. It, it, it means gentleness or humility. Um, the gentleness that the believer is to show comes from a place of humility. Uh, they to realize it is God who is at work in them that brought them to the newness of Christ in life. It is what we know, friends, is sanctification, that the Spirit of God is moving us from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Friends, this is not a work that you and I can stake claim to. Salvation is not something that you can gird up and kindle for yourself and make for yourself. This is something that stems from God himself. And friends, once we realize that, it changes everything. It changes how we see people who may be less spiritual than us. You know, because we can, we can tend to oftentimes uh, be so puffed up in ourselves because we know so much Bible and we know so much theology and then we look at people who don't know as much theology as you do. We start looking down on them and then all of a sudden they begin to run from the faith. Why? Because you didn't show them love. You didn't show them kindness. You didn't show them compassion. 
Check out Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, I love it, put on, put on, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That as we show consideration and humility to all men that we come across, may we be cautious and ever so careful not to stick our theological noses so high in the air that we forget that we too were once lost. Check out the reminder that Paul gives Titus as the pastor leader of these home churches in Crete. He says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. If that is not a gut punch, I don't know what is. He states for we also, we, we also, that means Paul is including himself in this. We, conjunction, he's including that here. And check out what he says. We were once foolish. Now, here's a question. Why must we show compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness and patience to others. Because Christ did the same for you and for me. Paul yet again reminds Titus that these things must be consistently repeated into the hearing and into the hearts of the believer. That we must remember that what has been graciously given to us and shown to us it's from God. The moment that you and I forget how foolish we once were is the moment that pride begins to settle in our hearts. And once pride begins to fester and you begin to puff up your chest and think that you're better than anyone, the Bible tells us that pride comes before the fall. God will humble us God will make us see that no, 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 don't you ever think that you did anything, but I did everything. Paul mentions this very truth in Colossians chapter three, verse seven, regarding the foolish things that we once walked in. He says, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, verse seven, and in them you also once walked and you were living in them. This living in them doesn't mean that you just did it, right? Like you just, you sinned one day and it's like, ah, okay. No, you relished in it. You and I enjoyed it. I, I, you, if, if you tell me that this is not true for you, you would be a lie. That when it comes down to sin that you didn't enjoy it. Before Christ, when it came down to sin, you enjoyed it. You enjoyed it so much so the Bible tells us that you relish in it. We relish in it. We love it. Like a pig in mud, we roll in that thing. But it took God to show us what it was that we were really rolling in. Filth, foolishness, nastiness. Even for some of us now, even hearing that, some of you might be clutching your pros. Oh my God, who, was that me before? But friends, if, if we are to be brutally honest, if we were to be brutally honest with a humble heart, we can actually say, yeah, that was me. I was that liar. I was that thief. I was that murderer. Maybe you didn't murder somebody physically, but maybe in your heart, yeah, you jabbed them a little bit. And may I suggest this morning that it is biblically healthy to be reminded that we once were these things and that from time to time we still struggle with these things. I'm just gonna put that out there for you. Why? Because the reality is is that within this life as believers, the reason why we should remember these things, the reason why it is biblically healthy, I wanna give you three things why. The first thing is that it produces humility in recognizing that God chose us and brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Humility. The second thing that it produces is gratitude. 
Gratitude that we are saved from the wrath of God. That we are saved from the very wrath of God. And thirdly, it provides us, friends, it provides us with peace. Peace knowing that we are no longer enemies of God and helplessly foolish, but that we have been made alive in Jesus Christ. Titus is reminded to stir the believers to remember for themselves what their lives looked like without Christ. And friends, I urge us this morning, remember where Christ found you. Remember where Christ met you. I love the next four verses. They're going to be packed with a lot of theological meat. So my prayer is that I can be able to help unpack this for us this morning. Uh, Paul moves from reminding the believer to live well to providing a theological basis for proper living. Not only should you be reminded of what you rightfully deserve and what you were in, but I want to give you, he says now, I want to give you some theological framework for why you should be an awestruck wonder, why you should rejoice and be thankful for what God has done and why you should live well. Check out verses four through seven. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to, check it out, his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, as a student of the text, you know that whether and when you see, rather, the word but, B-U-T, that whatever comes after the but is greater than what came before it. We just read that we, at one point, prior to Christ calling us by name, were sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, incapable of knowing God, incapable of being known by him because of what we did. And then Paul hits us with this beautiful conjunction, B-U-T. Paul mentions that it was the kindness of God, our Savior, that appeared. This glorious grace of God entered into human history. That the pre-incarnate Christ comes in, wraps himself in flesh and blood, and we see him and we come to know him in the form of a baby. Now, friends, if that is not humility, I don't know what is. The sovereign creator, second person of the Trinity, enters into human history to wrap himself up in flesh and blood, the very creation that he created, he became. Humility. He lived a sinless life. He died a perfect death, yet he was raised with perfect power. Friends, it is this kindness that appeared. But not only did he appear and make himself known, the Bible says that he came grace and truth with a purpose. Luke documents in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, these words from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. What Paul shows us within these four verses is that the way in which salvation came was not only a divine manner, but the way in which you and I came to faith, that too is a divine manner. This eliminates, please hear me when I say this, this eliminates the idea that you saying the sinner's prayer saved you. This eliminates the idea that, you know, one worship night when you were 12 or whatever and you lifted your hands and said, Jesus, come into my heart. Make you my Lord and Savior. I make you my Lord and Savior. It eliminates that. The reason why it eliminates that, Paul makes it very clear. The text shows us that it is God who saved us. 
Not your willingness, not your righteousness, not your goodness, not your kindness, not how you love people. No, 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 no. Your work did absolutely nothing. Your merit, your feeble attempts to look perfect, act perfect, do the perfect things means nothing to God. I, I just want you to rest in that real fast. Like just, it means nothing. It was God alone that initiated the relationship because he alone could take a jacked up person like me, a jacked up person like you and make us whole. That is God's work. John chapter 6, verse 65, Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, said this, and he was saying, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless, unless, unless it has been granted him from the Father. Did you catch that? If no one can come to Jesus unless it had been granted by the Father, then that means that the Father had to choose whom the Son would receive. Friends, the beauty of the doctrine of election is that you didn't do anything to get God's attention. I'm going to say it again. You did not do anything to get God's attention. That this work of salvation is initiated by God. It is accomplished in God. It is completed in God, giving all glory to God. And I thank God that if it was up to me to hold on to salvation, I would be lost. Can we just breathe a sigh of relief? Like, y'all, if, if, if salvation was based upon how good we think we can be day by day, our salvation would be in question every single moment of our lives. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the beauty of what Jesus did. He said, I'm gonna take all the hard work off of you. You, you don't have to strive. You, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be born again, and that's by my doing. Uh, Nicodemus had a hard time understanding this too. Um, Nicodemus had a hard time understanding this. You can see it in John chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, but you also see it, let's start off here in uh, verse 3, where Jesus has to tell him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the reason why Nicodemus had such a hard time understanding this is because his thought was, well, I'm old. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb to be born again? And Jesus is like, nah, doc, that, that's not how it works. That's physically impossible. I know your mom would probably be really upset with you, right? Like, that just doesn't work. Um, and so John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answers again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6 then says, that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the spirit is spirit. Ultimately, Nicodemus, friends, was coming from a pharisaical understanding of being born again in the sense of Jewish tradition. However, Jesus' emphasis on this new birth required water, which was spiritual washing and cleansing, and then the spirit, spiritual transformation. And in the same way, Paul lets Titus know that this regeneration and rebirth is accomplished not by works of righteousness, but by God himself. Again, I want to give you the example of Nicodemus again. In, in, in Jewish tradition, when a boy, a young boy became a man that was 12 years old, he would have a bar mitzvah. That's, a, that's a, another level of becoming new. It would be considered a new birth. And so in Jewish tradition, getting these accolades and getting these new levels in your life would be considered new birth, becoming new, becoming different. However, Jesus says, no, your new birth comes by my own doing. Your new birth becomes and takes place by me turning you on. And I love this part in the text. Check out verse seven. Check out verse seven. So that being justified by his grace, we could be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
Paul informs Titus in this congregation that this gift of grace has been accomplished through the will of the Father and that we are justified because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. We see Paul uses these two words, so that. At the beginning of verse seven, do you see it there in the text? So that is used to conclude something that had already been previously stated in verses four through six. So you can say that Paul is really wrapping up this theological mystery of the workings of salvation. And I love what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 29 through 30. He expresses this logical flow, if you will, by which the workings of grace is accomplished in the lives of those in whom the father chooses. Check it out. Verses 29 and 30 of Romans chapter eight. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Check out verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those in whom he called, he also justified. And those in whom he justified, he also glorified. I want to show you a graphic real fast. If we can get that on the screen. I had some effects on there, but technology didn't allow us to get there. So bear with me as I explain this to you. We see eternity past, eternity present, eternity future. And we see this timeline from eternity past to eternity future. We see that eternity's past, God the Father's sovereign election took place. The Bible tells us that God foreknew us. He foreknew us. That means that God chose those in whom he would save, those in whom he would know. He made that decision before the foundations of the world. And I want you to see where this bracket happens, where eternity present occurs. You see where it says human condition? It says spiritually dead. That vertical line says spiritually dead. Friends, that was you and I prior to Christ. We did not and could not get access to God nor know God. Why? Because we were spiritually deprived. It literally means that we had absolutely no desire to love God, to know God, to seek God, to be with God. But check out in God's sovereign election and choosing in eternity's past, what happens in eternity's present the moment that someone comes to faith. I love it. You see where it says Holy Spirit in Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, brings about what is known as regeneration. It's this new birth. It literally means that anybody and everybody who the Father desired to have for himself, at that moment when he said, that's who I want, at this particular time in Cairo, when they come and they hear the gospel message and they're turned on, the Holy Spirit opens up their eyes. That's regeneration. That literally takes you from now. The blinders are now pulled off. You're like, Jesus, you are the son of God. You are who you say that you are. And at that moment, check out what simultaneously happened at the same time. What Jesus did on the cross, that moment it hit for you. That goes to your account that you move from spiritual death to spiritual life and you are now made alive. Therefore, salvation and justification is given to you. At that moment, you are also glorified with Christ as well. Check this out. You see where it says baptism? What took place in you, now you let everybody else know. This is why the Catholic Church has such a hard time. It is just so false teaching is ridiculous. That baptism doesn't save you. If baptism saved you, I'm pretty sure we see a lot of folks just walk, I'm saved in the holy favor of the Lord. <laughs> Baptism took place after the work of what God did took place. Then you see at the moment of regeneration, you and I become what we call spiritual infants. You become reborn. It's like a baby again. So now I'm learning this new life. I'm not gonna be perfect. I'm gonna make some mistakes. I'm gonna bump my knee. But guess what happens in sanctification because we have the Holy Spirit? We are able to move and grow in grace. That's where we see spiritual maturity. At the moment that God takes us out of this place, we see transition. We're now with him in eternal life. Friends, do you see your name anywhere on that, that picture? Do, do you see anything that you did on any initiation? You, no? Folks online? No? <laughs> All of this was done by God. That's the grace. Amen. 
We should literally be friends in awestruck wonder at what he did. When I sit back sometimes, tears flow from my face because I realize I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But here's the beauty of the gospel that you heard it. Someone was preaching to you. Pastor Steve was preaching over the app. You heard about it. You hear something in you was like, man, this, this message is unique. This message is special. And then all of a sudden you're turned on. Friend, you're turned on because God chose you. God loved you and God foreknew you. And because he foreknew you, he loved you. Then you didn't have to do a single thing about it. Hallelujah. This work, friends, shows us that there was no plan B. There was no plan C. That always has been and always will be. And you know the beauty about this? There may be somebody sitting in right now who may not have a relationship with Jesus. There may be somebody watching online who may not have a relationship with Jesus, but they hear the gospel message and something may turn on for them. And this may be a moment where they move from spiritual death to spiritual life. We're gonna end here. Titus chapter three, verse eight. Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things, these things, these things are good and are profitable for men. Friends, Paul drops the mic right here. <laughs> for the reader and the hearer of this letter, and he summarized it by saying, this is a trustworthy statement. The statement is trustworthy, friends. Again, understand this in context because we're talking about the Cretan church, that the reality of what Epimenides shared regarding the truthful reality of his own people, that they're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, that Paul is showing that there's some people on this island who've been turned on by the gospel, that there's still hope amongst this chaotic and crazy world that this gospel can still be preached this gospel can still be heard and people that are far from God can be able to be drawn near to God why because God drew near to them and this is what you and I have the opportunity to do as men and women of God is your life can now be an example to those who are around you that are like man I'm too sinful man I messed up too much I've thrown, I've done all kind of crazy stuff. Your life can now speak to them and say, listen, if he did it for me, I know he could do it for you. Last week we talked about our life being the movie trailer by which people can see what Christ has done and these coming attractions of what is to come. You know, I, I love, I love what 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 says. It says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, he said, among who I am foremost. And because this statement, friends, is trustworthy, and Paul reminds Titus to speak confidently about these things to the churches. I love watching um, news commentators I love watching debates, especially uh, debates about issues of the day. Uh, and the way you know that you, you're about to have a really good debate is when the people who are debating bring facts, right? You don't want to bring just fluffy opinions and stuff, but you know a good debate's about to happen when facts come. And the reason why I love it is because facts can be debated, debated but they cannot be dismissed. You, you can say, ah, no, no, no. But at the end of the day, a fact is a fact. And the Apostle Paul presents to the church the facts. 
He, he presents to them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And then he provides evidence to his facts and his proven data. He, he reminds them that to think about the very faith that they have and possess. You see, when I look in this room around here, I see facts. I see facts that God has brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. I see evidence of that. I see evidence through your testimony. I see evidence through engaging with you and how you love and how you live. And in that same way, friends, when it comes down to a non-believer they can't dismiss a fact and my hope for you is that as you live to the glory of God that you present these facts that you share the gospel in a way that when people see your life not perfect but they see your life they can see this message Paul makes it certain that this life we have in Christ must be lived with regards to the reality of what Christ did on the cross. And when you think about what he's done, friends, it changes our behaviors and our responses. See, that's the difference between behavioral modification and all these self-help books and what Christ did. Behavioral modification says I have to change for myself from the outside in. What God does, he says, I'm changing you from the inside out. And when you have the temptation and when temptation tries to fester up in you and your sin nature tries to get the best of you, friends, I want you to do something. I want you to remember the cross. When you have the desire to slip back into your old way of life and doing things, friends, I want you to remember the cross. When you want to respond in an evil way towards someone that has said something about you, done something to you, I want you, friends, to remember the cross. See, because when you remember the cross, the same beating and scourging that Christ did, that ain't nothing compared to what you're getting right now. And lastly, even when you fall into sin, Friends, I want you to remember the cross because his kindness for the believer will always lead you back to repentance. Again, that is the grace of God. Remembering what has been done on Calvary, friends, is not a guilt trip. It's a grace gift. Wallace Wilbur, a New Testament professor, who wrote a commentary on the epistle of Titus said this, and I quote, the inculcation of gospel truth requires patient repetition. Patient repetition. May each of us remember these things as Paul implores Titus to teach the Cretan home churches to do the same. For remembering these things and living out the truth of the gospel in humility, in kindness, and in love will produce good fruit. And that fruitfulness will be shown in and through your life, but only if you remember, remember, remember. Let us bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, help us to remember. Help us to remember that our neighbor who may not know you still needs to hear the gospel. Lord, help us to be obedient as you have allowed us to participate in this work. That Lord, if we never did anything else, you love us. That it's not about what we can do or how good we can do it. It's not about performance. God, it's about resting in your grace. God, may we just take off that performing and, and that need to do, do, do and just rest in knowing what you did, did, did. It is your grace alone that saves. We love you. We thank you for this grace gift. And may we live to honor and serve you in obedience every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.